If you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Galatians. And today we'll be looking at two verses, verses 15 and 16 of the second chapter. This is indeed Thanksgiving week. Um, At Crossway, we will be kicking off Thanksgiving week as we always do by eating Thanksgiving uh, right after service. It's It's a really wonderful time that we have as a church to come together and to give thanks to God and to do what Americans do around this time, and that's eat turkey and eat Thanksgiving, and we are very happy to be doing that. As I was coming through and, and thinking through scripture this, this week, uh, Thanksgiving was on my mind, and I was thinking, what is really the central part of Thanksgiving? And certainly the vast majority of Americans will have varying side dishes. Some people will eat corn casserole, some will be green bean casserole, some will have you know, sweet potato casserole. The casseroles can vary, but the one constant is turkey. Turkey is the constant almost always at Thanksgiving. But is that really the center of it? Could you take the turkey out of Thanksgiving and still give thanks? And I don't mean like having grandma replace it with tofu or something like that, which no one would give thanks for, but like, could you replace it with something else and still have Thanksgiving? My family and I did this not too many years ago, I think two years ago, we didn't have extended family coming in and Brie wisely decided that she didn't want to spend all day uh, cooking a turkey. And so we told our kids when we lived in Louisville, anywhere you want, you go, you pick food and we will go get it for you. Um, And so my kids being given free reign to go wherever they wanted to, got bagels from Panera and breakfast sandwiches from McDonald's. And uh, we had Thanksgiving, just picking up our favorite random foods. And it was indeed Thanksgiving, we had a wonderful time giving thanks to God. See, turkey isn't even the center of Thanksgiving. Family is giving thanks to God is for what he has done. That is the center of Thanksgiving. Without those things, you do indeed lack Thanksgiving. What is it about the Christian faith? As we talk about what God has done for us, we've sung about what God has done for us. What is the center of that the core of that, which if we lost it, we would lose the gospel. We come very, very close to that center if we don't actually hit on the center of that today, especially in verses 15 and 16 of the second chapter of Galatians. Specifically, verse 16 gets about as close to the center of everything that Christianity would have to say to people about what it means that Christ has done for you. It is, in a way, the center of everything. If it was the solar system, this verse, especially in the book of Galatians, would be the sun, and everything else around it would be the planets and the stars. They simply surround it, and they they circle it, but they are not the center of it. This is the center of Christian thought and belief. Read with me, then, in verses 15 and 16 of the second chapter of Galatians. Paul says to Peter, And also to us. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. This is the word of our God. These two verses are the center of everything that happens in Galatians. Everything that Paul will say, everything that he has said, finds its pinnacle here. And so it would do us very, very well to sit down 
and to take some time to think through what Paul is saying here and what we have to do because this is the center of Christian thought and Christians have been around for 2,000 years. There's a lot that are in these verses and sort of packed into these verses, not just from the 2,000 years of Christian thought, but even unpacking the Old Testament for us to simply come in and think that we can understand all that's being said here in one sermon is just not going to happen. But we can at least go through and clarify some things that we need to have clarified for us. So we will start first with the concept of justification. Let's clarify the concept of justification. And you hear that this is, if this is a central verse in Christian thought, then clearly justification, whatever that is, is central to Christian thought because Paul mentions it three separate times in here. As a matter of fact, the same words kind of rumble over you. It's like you're getting run over by a car. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So what does Paul mean when he says that a person is or is not justified by this or by that? Before we even begin to tackle that, we need to know something about how this word is used in Greek and how it's used in Hebrew, and how it then gets translated into English. English uses two words where Greek and Hebrew use one. Clearly just, justice, justified, all sort of revolve around the same thing. They call come from kind of the root word just, and that's how we use it here. And usually when we hear the words just or justice, we think of courtrooms. We think of something outside of us that's being done. When we think that justice should come to people, we think that it should be given to people. But the same Greek and Hebrew words that give us just and justice also give us the idea of righteousness, which is handled in almost a completely different way by the English word righteousness, which we think of something almost internal to us. When we say that no one is righteous, we don't think of God necessarily clearing them from what they have done, but we think of whether or not they're sinful, something inherent in them. But these two words are linked together. They're not all the same. Some are verbs, some are nouns, some are adjectives, but they're all based on one sort of root word. And so as we go through Scripture, when we try to understand what it means to be justified, we need to keep that in mind. It is, it is mixed up with the idea of righteousness. It's mixed up with the idea of justice. We, we can go backwards, for instance, to the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. As a matter of fact, when you look that up in the Greek, that same word is used four times. If we were to do a more literal translation of the Greek, it would be something like, He who makes righteous or declares righteous those who are unrighteous and who declares unrighteous those who are righteous are both like abominations before the Lord. Greek uses the same word for all of them, wicked and justifies and condemns and righteous. The idea throughout the Old Testament is that these words are used almost and always in a courtroom setting. Just as we had in Proverbs 17, we get the same sort of sense in 2 Samuel 15. Absalom says, Oh, that I were judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. They would come with their complaints. They would come saying, my neighbor moved the boundary over. They would come and say, he stole my sheep and I would provide justice. I would tell them who was in the right and who was in the wrong. Deuteronomy 25.1, if there is a dispute between men, 
Let them come into the court and judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. The same idea that you are declaring just those who are innocent and you are declaring guilty and you are condemning those who are guilty. The idea of this word is almost always used in sort of a courtroom setting. This is why we call this word, we call Paul's use of it, forensic justification. So for all of you who have seen CSIs or you've seen other sort of detective shows, right, there's forensic science, right? That doesn't mean that it's like a special branch of science. It's regular science that's used specifically for legal cases. It's, it's methods and everything are used specifically so that we can use them in the court of law, proving guilt or innocence. That's what forensic means. And so this sense of justification is just pointed at a courtroom scene. God is adjourning a court, and the question is whether he will declare you righteous or not. And there's something important about that. When we speak of justification, we do not mean that God is making anyone righteous. In the Old Testament, when judges declared righteous or unrighteous, when judges declared justified or not justified, it was simply a declaration. It wasn't a making anyone anything. You're not being made righteous by this. More than that, it doesn't tell us how we are justified, but it's simply the declaration that you are just. This is often tied in the Old Testament specifically to covenants. Now, there are many different covenants in the Old Testament. The first one was between God and his creation and Adam and Eve. And of course, we know the verse well in Genesis 2. The Lord God looks at Adam and he says, You can surely eat of any tree in the garden, but the garden of good and evil in the midst of the garden, you, or the tree of good and evil in the midst of the garden, you can't eat it because the day you do, you will die. Now, the serpent shows up and tricks them, but what we have from that point on throughout Genesis is a record of, of death. God is merciful. He allows them to live. But we find out immediately after chapter 3 and the cursing that comes and, and God pronouncing death upon them that you came from dust and so to dust shall you return. While they live, there is death that is coming for them. Immediately in chapter 4, we have the killing of Abel by Cain. Immediately in chapter 5, we have genealogies, but these genealogies don't sound like the ones we get for Jesus later. It's not... Obed father Jesse and Jesse father David. But we get years, right? It's a weird thing. Why does it give us years? So-and-so lived 900 years. That puts a pretty definite end point on their life. They're not still alive. And if that point wasn't made good enough by putting years on it, they say at the end of every single person, and he died. Death reigns all over the place. God has promised that if you transgress me, you will die. And what we see even today, all the way through scripture, all the way through history, is death always wins. It's batting 100. The record in the early part of Genesis is one of travesty and wreck. God destroys the world with a flood. And even the family that he saves through it doesn't appear to be tip-top. Noah's family has problems. And it's not actually until Genesis 12 before God shows up and pronounces a blessing. He says, this is not the way it's always going to be. 
It is a passage that Paul will later talk about being the gospel. This is the gospel in the book of Genesis where God looks at Abram and he says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And God says, this is different. He requires nothing out of Abraham. He just flat out says, Abraham, and this time Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will make you into a great nation. And every family on earth, all of the peoples of the earth will be blessed through what I'm going to do with you. Later on, we get another covenant, which is the Mosaic covenant. And God looks at his people, as we talked about earlier this year in Deuteronomy, he looks at his people and says, here is the deal. You get the land. I will give you the land, but you keep my word. You keep my law. There's all these precepts. You do them, you get the land. You don't, you get exiled. Now, as we go through scripture, what we find is that God's righteousness is tied up with that covenant that God himself is righteous because he upholds the covenant. When he looks at his people and they have sinned against him, he is declared righteous for kicking them out of the land. He is declared righteous for making them like all of the other nations. They have transgressed his covenant. They have broken his covenant and therefore he is good to remove them from the land. They become just like all of the other Gentiles. Gentiles who aren't in Abraham's covenant. Gentiles who are still under the Edemic covenant, which says, if you sin against me, you will die. And once they remove themselves from the Mosaic covenant, they find themselves squarely in the Edemic covenant, which is only death. While this is prevalent in the book of Galatians, its most rightful home is the book of Romans. Galatians assumes that this is true. Romans is going about showing that it's true. And so from about 90,000 feet, we are going to discuss the first three chapters of Romans to get a better understanding of what justification is. First, God says through Paul in verse 16 of the first chapter, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Remember that, the righteousness of God, his rightness, his justice, his goodness to the covenant, to keep the covenant, both the curses of the covenant and the blessings of the covenant, it is revealed through this from faith for faith. He then turns around immediately and says, for the wrath of God. So, because it's in covenant. And he says, if you break my covenant, there is wrath coming. He then turns around and says, for the wrath of God is revealed. And it's revealed in the end of Romans 1 against idolatry. It's against pagans. It's against people who have turned away from worshiping the one true and living God to those who have worshiped the creator. Instead of the creator, they've worshiped those things that are created. Birds and animals and creeping things. In chapter 2 then, Paul turns to the Jews and he says, "Ah, I know what you're thinking. I know you think that you're better off because you've got the law, but you're not. In 2 verse 12, he said, All who sinned without the law, they'll perish without the law. And all who sinned and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it's the doers of the law who will be justified. 
He says, you think that because you're Jews and you have the law that you're somehow special, but it's not being Jews that makes you special. It's not hearing the law that makes you special. It's doing the law that makes you righteous. That's what's going to clear you in the last days. That's where God will give his final verdict over your life. It will be because you've done the law. He goes on to say this in verse 25, for circumcision, that is the defining characteristic of the Jews, is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You're no longer a person of the covenant, but you're back out of the covenant into the curse of Adam. So God's justice rolls down. His wrath rolls down because people are unfaithful to the covenants. They're unfaithful to the Adamic covenant. They're unfaithful to the Mosaic covenant. But this creates a problem because we are not the only ones on trial. We are not the only ones who are held accountable to a standard. God himself has to be held accountable to a standard because he has entered into a legal agreement with us. He has to be good to his word. He has to be good to the very promise of Abraham to be a blessing, to make his name great, to make him a blessing to all peoples. And so Paul then changes tones and in chapter 3, verse 3 says this, what if some were unfaithful? What if some Jews were unfaithful? Does that nullify the faithfulness of God? Why would that be the case? It's only the case because it seems like Paul is laying everybody condemned. If everybody's condemned, then God hasn't been true to his word to Abram. He goes on to say, by no means, let God be true, even though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That God will be justified. That his actions with people will be good and holy and true. That he will be good to the word that he has spoken and he will be seen to be. Paul goes on to say in verse 21, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested. Remember, in the beginning in verse 17, the righteousness of God is manifested, right? It is revealed. Then the wrath of God is revealed. And now Paul says the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. That his righteousness is not found in the Mosaic covenant here. His faithfulness to the covenant to bring people blessing, to bring people goodness is not found in the law. It's apart from the law, although the law witnesses to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Down in verse 26 then, listen to how Paul puts this. It was to show God's righteousness at the present time. God is showing himself righteous to all of the covenants. By cursing and by blessing, he does it. Why and how? So that he might be just So that God is showing that he is upholding the covenant every step of the way. So he is just. He has not slipped in his keeping of the covenant. But he is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. That is, he looks at people who have faith, who have fallen either in Adam's sin or through the Mosaic curse. They are fallen people and all are ungodly before him. All deserve punishment. All deserve hell. And yet God is able to look at them and declare them not guilty. He acquits them of all of their charges. God is able both to be just and to justify people. That justification is clearly about the forgiveness of sins. In in Romans chapter 4, Paul speaks of David 
Speaking of the blessing, just like the blessing that was to come to Abraham, the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, the one whom God justifies apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man with whom the Lord will not count his sin. God stands as judge and he is good to his word always. He is good to punish sin because he said, I will always do that. And he is good to uphold his covenant to Abraham that says, I will pour out blessings on people. And he does it by not holding you accountable for his sin, your sin. He does it by holding Christ accountable for you. So justification is almost always forensic. Righteousness, in this sense, is almost always forensic as well. But that then leads us back to Galatians, and the question needs to be asked, what is this thing about the works of the law? So let us clarify not just the concept of justification, but the phrase, the works of the law. What are these works of the law? Quite often, it's thought of as legalism. These are the works that you check off so that when you arrive before God, if you got 51% good and 49% bad, you can kind of escape through. You might get through. As long as you do more good than bad, you're going to be okay. That's typically what we think of as legalism. And it used to be thought that, hey, when he talks about works of the law, this is kind of what he means. It's a shorthand for legalism. People are trying to make their way before God based on their works. As we read through Galatians, and as you look back at first century documents, it seems like that's a really hard thing to maintain. We should, at times, understand that the Jews thought that works played a role in salvation. But, quite often in the first century, now, since the Qumran cave was found sometime in the early part of the 20th century, we get a better look at what Jewish thought was like in the first century, and they were not as legalistic as we thought they were. Frankly, a good many of them thought that they were saved because God is gracious to them, because God is merciful to them. They would go back and they would read a passage like Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. It was not, God says to Israel, because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. He chose you because he loves you and he loves you because he chose you. It was his pure, unmitigated, unnecessary choice of Abram. That was it. Abram did nothing to deserve his choice. Jacob did nothing to deserve his choice before either, as Paul says, does good or bad. God simply chooses him. And they had a strong idea that they were elected by God and that God would save them not because they were necessarily super holy. God would save them because he promised to save them. So it's unclear that works of the law would make sense as legalism. So others have looked at those type of issues, covenant, which righteousness clearly has a role in covenant. We talked about that. And they said, well, works of the law is probably just these sort of boundary markers that we talked about. That basically there's three, right? There's circumcision, there's table fellowship, there's table regulations, what you can eat and what you can't, and there's keeping the Sabbath. And many scholars have come in and said, well, it's probably not legalism. It's probably just being a Jew, okay? So you need to keep the works of the law. The works of the law are circumcision and all the others. Circumcision was by far the main one. 
So we'll just sort of circumvent it and say the works of the law are circumcision. But that's a huge problem in the book of Galatians. It doesn't make much sense. Now, you've got to stick with me for a second, but realize that what we have argued so far through the book of Galatians is this, that the agitators that are showing up in Galatia are not telling people, you need to keep the law. They're not telling them that. What they're telling them is that you need to be circumcised. Listen to how Paul speaks back in chapter 5. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. The person who talks like that only says that kind of thing if the people he's talking to don't think that they need to keep the whole law. They don't think they need to. What they're being told is you just need to be circumcised. So if we understand that works of the law is simply a shorthand or in this case a longhand for circumcision and other things, the argument gets really squirrely. Paul shows up and he says, now Peter, you and I both agree we agree that you don't need to be circumcised, but only have faith in Christ. Why does Paul bring up the example of Peter then? Because that is exactly the opposite of what the agitators are saying. The agitators are saying, no, in order to be the people of God, you need to be circumcised. And then Paul goes and he says, well, I've got an answer for that. I showed up this one day in Antioch and I opposed Peter and I said, Peter, you and I both agree. You don't need to be circumcised. That's not much of an argument. It only works if Peter is an absolute authority and Paul has worked very hard to make sure that Peter is not an authority in the book of Galatians. Most likely, the works of the law then are just the precepts of the law. They're just the things that the law requires. What does the law require out of you? It does indeed require table regulations and Sabbath keeping and circumcision, but it requires a whole bunch other beside that. This is how we would make sense of something like 310. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. You need to do all of the things that are written in the, in the law. This is what it says. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. All things. It's, it's all of the precepts of the law. So the phrase, the works of the law, it's not a pure legalism, but it is a keeping of the law in order to make yourself right with God. That means that we also have to clarify, number three, the problem and the solution. We need to clarify the problem and the solution. As you read through church history and you read through people who handle the book of Galatians, we've got two different things going on. We need to make sure that we're being clear about this. What's happening in Galatia sounds like it's more of an identity problem. The agitators, I think the only way we can make sense of the example of Peter and of what he's saying to Peter here is if the agitators would agree full stop on what he says in verse 16. The agitators agree, you are not saved, you are not justified by works of the law. You're not saved by doing all of the law. You are not saved by any of that. You are saved and justified only by believing in Jesus Christ. The agitators would tell you full stop, that is true. The only way the book of Galatians makes sense is if they co-sign that. So they believe that. It seems then like what the issue is is not sin and it's not how you are justified from sin. But it's likely simply revolving around circumcision and them saying something like, listen, we know that you're justified and you are counted as innocent and acquitted from your sin only by faith in Christ, but you need to understand something. The people of God have always been and will always be the people who are of Israel and therefore the men 
always get circumcised. They always get circumcised. This is just part and parcel of what it means to be the people of God. Who are the people of God? How does Scripture speak of the people of God? It always speaks of them as the circumcised. So it's simply an identity problem. Who are you? Are you part of the people of God or are you not? Well, that comes down basically to circumcision. If that's the problem, though, Paul's solution seems really weird. He says, you don't understand. We are justified only by faith in Christ. Well, if the issue is identity, then why does Paul change it around to talk about sin? Many people have tried to answer this differently. The reformers, without enough background information, oftentimes made Jews seem like they were purely legalistic. And they said the problem in Galatia was people were being told you need to keep all of the law. That's probably not true. Because if they needed to keep all of the law, then saying that you aren't saved by works of the law makes a lot of sense and the solution and the problem meet. Others now have changed tack and they've said Paul's solution is a bit different. The problem is identity. Do you need to be Jewish? Not do you need to keep the law, but just do you need to be Jewish? And therefore, Paul's answer in justification is not so much a forensic term, but just saying, yeah, you're good. You're in, you're in the covenant. It's all about identity and it's really not about sin. Neither of those works. Here's what Paul, I think, is saying in verses 15 and 16. The issue is, in Galatia, as in Antioch, an issue of identity. Do the Gentiles need to be Jews? And Paul looks at Peter and he says, You, who used to be a Jew, you were a Jew by birth, by nature, you were Jewish. And no, not anymore. When, when you met Christ, you stopped living like a Jew. You actually started living like a Gentile. And, and now you think that you can force Gentiles to live like Jews. Listen to how he puts this in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth. That's identity. He says, the issue is identity. Okay, we've got that identity. You and me, Peter, we're, we're simpatico on this. We've got the identity. We are not Gentile sinners. Those Gentiles who don't have the promises to act, to Abraham. They don't have those promises. They've got the promises to Adam. The promises to Adam were nothing but death and death and death and death. They are sinners without hope of redemption. That's who they are. We are not that. But then he goes even further. And in verse 16, he says, we're not even like normal Jews, you and me, Peter. We are Jews who are defined by works of the law. We're not lawless Jews, as though simply our birth gives us that right, but we are men who have sought out the law and have sought to keep the law. As Peter himself says in the book of Acts, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I have kept myself pure from those things. Paul talks like this in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 7. I myself, he's saying this tongue-in-cheek, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So, listen, if it's identity, if all I need to worry about is who I am, I've got it covered. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I wasn't brought in from outside. I was born into it. I'm pure. Of the tribe of Benjamin, I can track my lineage. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. I kept the law. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
I kept it. I am pure and I'm holy. If you want to talk about a good Jew, I, Paul, am the best. Paul goes on to say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Going back to Galatians, listen to how he talks about Galatians. Uh, in Galatians 2, Peter, we are Jews by birth and we are defined by works of the law, but we know that we are not justified by that, but only by faith in Christ. We have left our identity behind because that identity, even at its best, can't save us. We can't keep the law. That is the common Christian confession. You can't keep the law. You think that by making them Jews, they're any better? They're no better. This is what he argues back in Romans 1, and then especially in Romans 2 and in Romans 3. The Jews have advantages. They have the Old Testament. They have the oracles, and they have the promises. They know of these things, but those things in and of themselves would never, ever save them. Becoming a Jew doesn't make you better. Becoming a Jew doesn't get you saved. Jews don't have a leg up when it comes to salvation. This is why later on in the letter, even in the passage below that we're going to talk about next week, he talks in verse 28 of the third chapter saying, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are no longer different. Your identities don't matter. Who you were doesn't matter, because if you think that it does, you've radically undervalued the sin in your life and God's holy and righteous wrath against that sin. If you think that your identity can help save you one bit, you are wrong and disastrously slow. This is why Peter is condemned, why Paul says earlier in 1.9 that anyone who preaches a different gospel than this is accursed. Because any sense of you thinking that because of who you are gives you a leg up on somebody else. It is a denial of Christ. This is why racism is so heinous and it should be seen as heinous because there is no way you can ever ever reconcile racism in any way, shape, or form with a thought that Christ justifies freely by his blood. Racism is an outright denial of the gospel. It's not outright racism here. It's just saying the Jews were a little better off. Paul says that is damnable. They're no better off. And it's not damnable because it says something about the Jews. And it's not damnable because it says something about the Gentiles. It's damnable because it says something about Christ and something about how he saves. Don't think for a second that the color of your face, the size of your wallet, the location of your address, don't think that any of that gives you any right before God. God doesn't care at all about that. As a matter of fact, I should rephrase that. He cares a lot about people who say things like that. He cares a lot about it because it diminishes his glory. It diminishes the work of his son. It increases your sin and it makes you proud before him. 
Paul says there is none of that. After, immediately after where we stopped in Romans chapter 3, where Paul says that he is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, Paul goes on to say, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Are are the Jews going to be so proud to stand in front of God and say, I'm Jewish? No. You think you have it better as a white American in the 20th century, 21st century, because you're wealthy, that God will respect you, because you've come to church a couple of times? Get out of here. God is no respecter of persons, and he certainly doesn't respect that. If it won't stand for Paul, it won't stand for you. You were justified, not because of who you are. You were only justified by Jesus Christ. And you will only be acquitted of your sin because of your identity, not in who you are, but in who he is. That is the gospel. That you can only be saved, you can only be acquitted at the final judgment of God because you declare that you are Christ's and nothing else. That's what Paul means by have faith in Christ. You believe in him, you trust in him, and eventually what Paul will say is you take on the identity of Christ and it is in him alone that you stand. You can't be justified by works of the law. You can't be justified by the color of your skin. You can't be justified by your social standing, how wise and intelligent you are. Any of the personal characteristics that you think you have that makes you you, the only one that matters is that you are a sinner in need of a savior. And that is Christ alone. That is something to be thankful for. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed thankful for your grace and mercy to us. And we are thankful that we do not need to become other people. For who has the power to do that? We are thankful, Father, that what we need has been provided for us. What we need has been given to us in your Son, that we may find ourselves in him not with a righteousness that we have gained on our own, not with a righteousness of being in the law perfect, because we can never be perfect. But we run to Christ that we might be saved from our sins. For there is no one else in heaven or on earth, and there is no other name that has been given by which we can run and be saved in. But Jesus Christ alone, may you be glorified here today, for you are good and holy. We give you thanks today for your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.